0: Good morning. You're listening to 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University, live from the Philip Cavalero Studio South. Welcome to the Monday edition of Hofstra's Morning Wake-Up Call. We're talking Long Island life, national news, and international issues. I'm your producer, Becca Williams, joined today by Dex and Michaela. We're going to be talking about a Las Vegas police officer's robbery accusations, Russia cutting off from the global internet, and Kamala Harris's trip to Poland. We're also going to be welcoming on Sue Zizza, a Hofstra alum, and award-winning audio producer later in the show to discuss the Estabrook Awards. But first, as always, Michaela, Dex, how was y'all's weekend? What's new?
1: Oh, I'm doing great. I've been schmavalicious, you know? <laughs> Having a great time.
0: Schmavelicious.
1: <laughs> schmavalicious. I love it.
2: <laughs> well, good morning I'm exhausted I didn't know that daylight saving time was occurring yesterday so I we look at my time and I was like okay it's 9 And now a couple seconds later it was 10 and I was like okay what's going on here here's, <laughs> the, here's
1: the thing Michaela with the era we live in we have smartphones that do that thing automatically mm-hmm. so we don't really have to you know oh no try to
2: I'm like like my fridge it was like still nine at my phone I was like okay this is weird I opened Twitter and I was like okay what's going on, what's going on? Yeah, oh,
1: <laughs> I, I have an alarm clock And a phone alarm. And my phone Mm -hmm. alarm was on time, but my, like, alarm clock, that was literally just an alarm clock, that was an hour off.
0: Yeah, I was also unaware of daylight savings. Maybe we just need to be, like, more aware of our surroundings, Michaela, because we're lost. We had
1: no idea what's going on. I'm not going to lie. Why is daylight savings a thing? It just feels like we do it just to do it. There's no real reason behind it.
0: Listen, I don't think any of us are an expert on daylight savings. I also... The whole concept of daylight savings is very confusing to me because where does the hour go? Like, yeah, what happened to like it? We where it did it go? We get it later <laughs> in the
1: year. I'm like, why? why? What is the purpose of this?
0: It's something about, like, the sun and, like, I don't know.
1: Uh, it, I, I, feel don't know. Like, I feel like it was a good idea 200 years ago and it people just stopped doing it. I, like, never stopped doing it. I feel it. like there,
0: yeah. there are definitely people that are, like, anti-daylight savings time.
1: It's just such a pointless idea. Just why not have it? have the time stay the same all year
0: i agree like i don't want to lose an hour but it it makes like the day longer and the night shorter
2: it does so i I feel like
0: it's it's because like we're getting into like spring summer and the days are longer
1: the thing is i like the night (laughs) i don't want we have to work during the day and we get to have fun during the night so wouldn't you want the night to be longer and the day to be shorter i mean
0: yeah you would for sure but sometimes that's not the way that it happens that's not the that's not what the government wants us to do Dex
1: well I don't like the
0: government (laughs) so okay well whether we like it or not daylight savings did happen we did lose an hour on Saturday night um in the middle of the night too like I didn't we didn't even see it coming
1: RIP to the hour
0: (laughs) we'll see it again later Well, we've got a lot to talk about this morning. First off, we've got a story about a Las Vegas police officer accused of robbing a casino. Uh, And Dex is going to talk about that.
1: Yeah. Uh, So a Las Vegas Metropolitan Police officials announced on Thursday that off-duty officer Caleb Rogers, age 33, was arrested on on February 27th for robbing the Rio All Suite Hotel and Casino, earning over $78,000 from it. He's been charged with interference with commerce by robbery and brandishing a firearm during a crime of violence in connection with a robbery last month, according to Las Vegas, the Las Vegas office of the Justice Department. He's also suspected in two other robberies, though he has not been accused or charged for them. So, this is, you know, a really bad sign. I feel like corrupt cops is becoming a growing problem in this country, and this incident shows not only that there are cops using their... like Obviously, since 2020, people have been making a lot of issue over cops abusing minorities. That's what's been getting a lot of noise, but there's also guys like this who aren't necessarily attacking a specific group, but they simply take advantage of their position to make a lot of money, and not just in robberies, but cops who take bribes, Cops who steal drugs from police inventory. Just this past year, there were numerous, you know, unrelated uh, issues, such as in Columbus, where two officers in the drug cartel unit, their job was to fight the distribution of drugs. They got arrested and charged for allegedly distributing 7.5 kilograms of fentanyl, and one of them even went as far as to attempt to recruit a confidential informant and offered legal protection for basically working for their ring. And something even more disturbing is, in 2020, over 323,000 accusations of police misconduct against both current and former officers were released online going back to 1985. In the complaints, 81,550 officers were named, including the then commissioner of the NYPD, Dermot Shea, Revealing massive amounts of corruption and misconduct incidents that were swept under the rug I won't say that we should defund the police like many people have said over the past couple of years Because I do believe that that would be an overaction and really wouldn't solve the problem But what we need is more training and a higher standard for who is allowed in So that people are who are likely to indulge in this kind of behavior aren't allowed to become officers of the law But what do you guys think?
2: Well, this article also mentioned that Rogers could face up to life in prison found guilty, according to U.S. Attorney's Office. For this case, I don't want it to group in corrupt officers using their power to terrorize minorities. This officer is being accused of robbing a bank at gunpoint and should not be grouped in with the same category as those who are using their weapons to kill people. Oh, obviously not, yeah. but
1: I'm just talking about cops who yeah, take advantage of Yeah, but I feel their- like
2: when you try to group two together, you're, you're, sometimes people... Some, might trigger other people to feel it. Well, certain way. what
1: I'm, I'm not trying to group them together. I'm just saying like yeah, I, I, people focus on one group, but also there's this other group yes, that I, is causing yeah. all sorts of issues.
2: Of course they are, but I feel like there are two separate issues. Like there's two. Oh, separate obviously, ways, yeah. Like you know. This is not the first cop that, you know, had robbed a bank or, you know, robbed, like, you know, robbed an area. There was, like two cases, one in 2008 and 1988, that there were cops that were robbing banks and robbing areas in mm-hmm. places like uh, Florida and New York City. And also, we also can't forget those cops who are serial killers. One one who was like in France, he was a former uh, police officer who admitted during his suicide letter that he was a, tourist c- a serial killer in France. Another one, Gerald uh, John Safner, was an American suspect serial killer who was convicted of murder and according to sources he may have killed two to uh, 30 people so i feel like there's totally different issues that occurs here there are corrupt cops but we should not group them all in the same category they should like, you know when we talk about people in prison we don't all group it all to the murderer you know category. oh yeah of course yeah. they mm-hmm. all have different boxes and i feel like you know we should just talk about the different boxes of corrupt cops and not be like okay they're all in the same category
0: yeah, I understand what you mean, Michaela. But for this specific story, something that I wanted to focus on was the fact that he used his department issued gun yeah. in the robbery. Uh, according to NBC, he didn't shoot it, but he put his finger on the trigger and threatened to do so. Uh, the entirety of the state of Nevada has pretty lax gun laws. So someone carrying a gun around is not something that would be unforeseen. Yeah. It's uh, They actually don't even require registrations for handguns. You do have to apply in order to receive a concealed carry permit, but it is a freely open carry state. So walking around with a gun is not something that you wouldn't see in Nevada. But the issue here lies with the fact that it was a department issued gun that he had.
1: Police officers shouldn't be able to take department issued guns home with them. Like, Becca, when we finish doing the show, does John Mullen ever let you just take the soundboard home with you? Do companies let their employees take computers home with them when they go home from work? No, because they are meant to be used exclusively when they're on the job, and it should be the same standard for cops. You know, uh, if a police officer wants to own a gun, I don't really have a problem with them owning, say, a pistol, not saying that they should be able to just casually buy an AR-15, because that is rather an AR-15s are rather Mm -hmm. extreme weapons, but to a limited extent, I do support that people should be able to own non-assault caliber weapons so long as they prove that they are capable of using it responsibly. But they should have to prove that they can use it responsibly, and robbing a casino at com- gunpoint is literally the complete opposite of being a responsible gun owner.
2: Yeah, they have to be physically and mentally cleared. Where should these cops keep their guns if they can't bring it home with them?
1: Well, they they should, I mean, when they're on duty, they yeah. should be able to use their department-issued yeah. gun. But when they're off-duty, they should have to buy their own guns just like everyone else.
2: Yeah. Uh, I feel like, you know, they are... Physically and mentally uh, clear to do this, I feel like you know they should carry, it. they should have it in their personnel anyway, because there are guns that you know go missing, you know, for people's homes. Why should these cops f- risk their guns being missing in the department? Like, where sh- like, why should they fear that their gun, that they leave in the department, somehow goes missing the next day, and they have to be still accounted for to f- have the- make sure that gun is in their possession? If you get what I'm saying.
1: Well, I'd say they should keep it at, say, the station. Yeah. I I just don't think But
2: there's so much stuff that could go wrong with leaving at the station. Like why can't they take it home with them? Like
1: Well
0: the issue there becomes why the issue there becomes like treating police officers as regular citizens versus treating them as like a higher position. Which that sparks a whole nother debate on like gun control and gun law specifically. Like, um, for a police officer, yes, they obviously have to go through training and tests to through the police academy in order to become a police officer and have that gun access. But then it comes down to, like, should they be able to remove it from the premises after they're no longer active on duty? Because, because of situations like this, where this cop was off duty, he used his department-issued gun. I mean, obviously, this is one example... And this isn't encompassing of all situations, but this is like starting the argument for people that would be against uh, people bringing their guns home from work.
1: Yeah. Like if there's a situation where, say, a cop's been recently undercover and they are genuinely in danger, maybe there can be be exceptions made. But if it's just a cop that hasn't really done anything significant lately, I don't think they should be able to take their guns home because stuff like this will happen.
2: Well, I feel like this is just for certain cases. It's not cops every day that are robbing uh, places. And there oh, are no, cops that, that but... have to purchase their guns before. The, the department does not always give you your gun. Sometimes the officer has to purchase their gun in order to like you know, have it. And I feel like it's not the department's job to make sure they are Basically, withholding guns when they're not at work, and police officers are not uh, ordinary citizens. They are they're twenty uh, 24 hours police officers. When something goes wrong, if they're off duty, they still have to you know respond to that.
0: But there's a little bit of of controversy with that because you can't there you can't have police officers twenty four seven on duty because once they're no longer. Technically on duty with that department. Yeah,
1: when you're off duty, you're
2: they off duty. yeah. But yeah. let's say those officers, like let's say nurses, for instance, doctors, where they're off duty, they're not working. They're still legally required to like you know pre- perform medical acts if needed. Yeah. Police officers are same category. If they're off duty, if there's a like crime acting, they're not going to sit around and be like, okay, I'm off duty, I can't do anything. They're going to like you know step in and step forward.
0: Yeah, but doctors. When they are off duty, aren't bringing their medicine with them and like injecting people or doing surgeries? Yeah,
2: but they would know how to do CPR. Yeah, you know, check your heartbeat and stuff like that. But the
1: pat the a police officer wouldn't all of a sudden lose his abilities because he doesn't have a department issued gun. Yeah, just like a doctor wouldn't.
2: But in certain lose his cases, once you want th- certain cases, like I like oh like, I can't think of anything right now. Once you want a police officer, not even to like shoot the gun, but like use have it, so, like you know probably has some authority to stop the situation from escalating. I know one story in particular where uh, there's an instance between two girls in like a different state that one girl was put to stab another. A police officer came up, not, uh, not on duty, but he had his gun with him and he, you know, stopped the situation immediately. So why should that police officer not have his gun if he's able to stop the situation from escalating someone getting killed?
0: Well, the argument there is, um, if you are off duty, there's always on duty cops that you can call that right. have them- at guns on them at that moment there and wasn't off, any
2: other off-duty cops
0: well i know but they can be called is what i'm saying like when a when a cop is off duty they are a civilian so it's like obviously civilians also have the ability especially in nevada like i said it's an open carry state and you can get concealed carry permits so there are regular citizens walking around with guns as well it's not like a crazy thing to happen but the argument the main argument is specifically with this story when an off duty cop is using his gun in a robbery is that like should we be allowing this easy access and allowing these these people to take their guns home with them after they are off the clock when realistically you don't know their personal life all the time like the heads of this department aren't 100% sure what you're going to be yeah. using this gun for when you take it home and you're no longer on company and time.
1: Obviously, most cops aren't going to be using their off-duty time to rob people and do stuff like that. But if they're not using it to commit crimes, there's a good chance that they won't need their department-issued gun. Mm-hmm. So you should they shouldn't be able to bring that home with them. If If they're doing the right thing, they're not going to need them. And if they're doing the wrong thing, they are going to need them to do you know rob people Mm -hmm. so i i generally don't believe that you should be able to bring your department-issued gun and this is someone who's general coming from someone who's generally supported cops throughout the all the so people saying that we should defund the police and stuff
2: well i I, i'm not a fan of guns but i do believe that if a police officer is legally allowed to carry a gun, like civilians who are legally allowed to carry guns, they should be allowed to have their gun with them if they want to. And besides uh, the uh, guns, the police department, uh, there should also be, you know, talks about you know ghost guns that are on the street right now. You know, New York City has like been cracking down on being guns being found in trash cans near like you know storefronts. There's definitely major issues with the gun control in America.
0: Yeah, I will. Absolutely. This is like a whole large discussion on gun control, but I appreciate both you guys' input and the very different perspectives that you're bringing to the show. Very interesting discussions. Let's go to wrap up our story on that Las Vegas robbery. Next up, we actually have a feature package that Michaela did for us. So, Michaela, you want to tell us a little bit about what this is going to be on?
2: Uh, yes. Recently, I sat down with Executive Director of Career Center, Michelle Koricks, to discuss employment rate, the effects on college graduates, and what graduate students should be doing to, uh, during this current issue. All
0: right. Sounds great. Well, we're going to go ahead and give that a listen, and we will be right back on 88.7 FM
2: Radio Hofstra University. So, don't go anywhere. Oh, could you tell me your background in working in the career center field? I've
3: been working in career services now for almost 20 years. I started off working in the media industry with college students as they interned in New York City and that was my favorite part of my job and I went back to school to study college student development. Did an internship in the Career Center at my institution and ended up staying there for about 15 years been at Hofstra now. This is my fourth academic year here running the, we are now the Center for Career Design and Development.
2: And what is the objective of the Career Center?
3: We are here to help students like soup to nuts as they design their career path. So we help students who aren't sure of what to major in, try and figure out what their values are, their interests, their personality, and their skills, and how that relates to the world of work. We also help students develop their career path and really look at what's the best internships, what are the best activities to participate in on campus? How can they build the set that, that employers are looking for?
2: How do you feel that the Career Center has been doing adjusting to the new way of life and of course the pandemic?
3: I think we've done a really good job. I mean, we have maintained our student engagement throughout the past six months at levels that at some points were actually higher than they were um, previously, which we're very proud of. We have implemented new programming. We still managed to have our four career fairs. Um, If you had asked me in May, I would have said, I don't know if we can do all four, and we were able to do all four, and all four of them were successful. I think we had over 2,000 touch points between employers and students. Uh, That's the one cool thing about the virtual fairs is we can see exactly what the outcomes are um, for each of the employers. So, students can connect in person. I've reserved actually this room here, um, our large workshop room for advising appointments only. Um, You can also connect with an advisor virtually through a Zoom appointment over the phone. Uh, We are also doing, um, we know that some of our students are studying at home abroad or in California and our office hours may not match up with when they're thinking about their career. So we are also accepting students' resumes and LinkedIn profiles and, and Handshake profiles as mail appointments. So if you would like that checked over, you just send it um, Career Advisor, and they will get back to you within a couple of days.
2: And you still serve alumni, don't you?
3: Yes, we do still serve alumni. Alums have access to all of our career fairs, to Handshake. They can attend any of our events, and we do have limited appointments available. They, unfortunately, can't come to campus because of the visitation rules.
2: According to CNBC Business Assistic, pre-pandemic, 71% of college students entered the Career Center, two times fewer, and 35% have never entered the Career Center at all. Do you know the value of students of the Career Center is reaching now? Um, I can say last,
3: last um, academic year we reached 60% of our student population, either through appointments or event attendance. Uh, The number goes up as you start looking at different types of engagement. So if you look at Handshake, we're higher than that. Um, So some students opt to only use our virtual resources, but we're in contact with 60% of the population. I think it's really important to take advantage of the services that are here uh, because it does help students really focus on what their strengths are. And one of my favorite services that we provide is administration of the Gallup Strengths Assessment. So we can talk with, with uh, individuals and say, okay, here's the top five things that you're good at. These are skills that employers are looking for. Let's talk about how you can highlight those, those strengths and those skills when you're meeting with an employer, when you're writing your cover letter, so that you're really putting your best foot forward. Also do mock interviews, and we have a mock interview software program called Big Interview. That I think is also really important for our students to use because they can practice. There's artificial intelligence built into the system to give feedback as well. So it's a great way to just to learn how to sell yourself in this really competitive economy.
2: Has it been more difficult to provide for students? So where are some common roadblocks the Career Center has faced?
3: Uh, you know, the same things that we we're seeing uh, across the board is we're all just trying to learn, you know, learn how to deal with some of the interruptions, you know, I, I remember once leading a staff meeting and all of a sudden my internet went out. I lost power and I couldn't log back in. So I was texting the rest of my team to say, hi, I'm, I don't know what's going on, but we'll get there. You know, we'll get there. Um, so, you know, those those things. But I, I think based because of the type of career counseling that we do, it's actually been really helpful to have Zoom. Because if you think about it, when you're over the phone, and you're both looking at a resume, you can't actually see what you're talking about. But if you're on Zoom, we can pull up the screen, make changes, you can see it at the same time that we, as your advisors, are seeing it. So it works really, really well for those types of advising appointments.
2: Zooms of fairs to Zoom intern fairs are occurring more frequently this semester and past. What are ways students could try to be more effective during that period? Assuring that
3: everyone has that access is something that's really important to us. You know, you mentioned interviews and conferences, and you know, that's one thing when we're working with employers, we want to make sure that every one of our students has equal access to the technology that they're using, um, or that they're comfortable in the space that they're in. The feedback that we get from employers is that they want students when they're coming to a conference or they're on an interview to have their cameras on, and sometimes that's not feasible for our students based on their home environment or wherever they are. We have made available our interview rooms because since we don't have employers coming physically here, we have spaces here in the Career Center that are open and available for our students to come in, open up their laptop and have a nice quiet space uh, that they can do an interview. The way our office is organized is we have two two separate teams. We have the career advising team, which are the counselors, and an employer engagement team. So the employer engagement team has not stopped researching employers. You know, we're looking weekly at the lists that are put out of these are the companies that are still hiring and developing relationships with those employers. And I had mentioned we had four career fairs. That's part, you know, that's all run through that employer engagement team. So they're bringing the employers right here to our our students. We typically have hundreds of jobs approved on Handshake each day. So those are things that we're, that we're trying to do. As far as attracting the seniors in so they know that we're doing that, we partner with other offices on campus like Commuter, Commuter Student Affairs promoted the career fairs and shared information about how to log in. We partner with faculty with the other student support offices to make sure that the word is getting out to students about all of these opportunities. We also partner with student clubs and organizations for our Network with Pride series to make sure that the the students who are most relevant for the events that we're holding find out about those activities through their involvement on campus. We have also created campaigns within Connect specifically for those students who are graduating who have not used our office in the past six months. So we reach out to them and say, hey, look, have a 15-minute appointment with us just so we can review the resources so you know what's available to you as you're starting your job
2: search, you're not alone. According to data from Federal Reserve Bank of New York, the employment rate for young college graduates has exceeded the general population. About 41% of college graduates and 33.8% of all college graduates this year are unemployed and are seeking jobs that does not require their college degree. What is your reaction to this and what is the career system doing to combat these numbers to ensure that students are getting the best for their buck? I am
3: not surprised by those numbers considering the current state of the economy. Right now, students are in a position where, unfortunately, they are taking what they can get and not the the careers that they're seeking. I believe that as long as you're, you're kind of continuing to build those skills and continuing to network, so if you're in a position where you have accepted a role, you're under, you know, you're underemployed, which means that the job that you're in does not require the credentials that you have. If you continue, you know, you work that job to pay the bills, but you're continuing to build your skills outside and continue to network, eventually things are going to get better. Back in May, um, we did a boot camp for those seniors who were graduating. And one of the things that we did was bring back Graduates that graduated in 0809, when there was a financial crisis, so those Hofstra alumni now are facing the same things that our current seniors are facing, as far as a difficult job market, and they're all successful. You know, they said, "Okay, here's what I did. I took a step back. I went to graduate school. I took a job that could have been considered below me, but I worked my you know my tail off, and I ended up." you know, being recognized by senior management and and moving up. Or I continued networking and staying involved in professional associations in my field, even though that's not where I got my first job. So that, you know, they all managed after a year or two to get to step
2: back into You're are. listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University.
1: All thoughts and opinions stated here on the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its Board of
2: Trustees. All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549. Well, welcome back. I want to thank Director Kovarits for sitting down with me to discuss this issue. The vote re- well, and other news. The Russian government removed the country's global internet last Friday, March 11th, according to documents published by the Kremlin last week. They are seeking to remove any uh, reliance on in Western internet services. These documents were published by Ministry of Digital Development. Russia is planning to launch their own internet portals and state-owned websites by the end of the week in order to quote. Coordinate to defend telecommunication services on the internet." End quote. Several businesses have either pulled out or suspended work in Russia, from Apple, Toyota, Microsoft, H&M, Visa, um, uh, Mastercard, Starbucks, McDonald's, and even IKEA. And, and and this and this is a way of backing. Is this a way of backing the Russian government in a corner, or will this hurt the regular Russian citizens who may have worked in some of these businesses?
1: Well, ever since he was first elected, Putin's been gradually increasing his power from initially being elected as president and then managing to maintain control over the government by getting elected prime minister while having sort of, I guess, a puppet, I don't want to say that, but basically that, uh, as president. And now he's since established himself as president for life, and this move is essentially him trying to make his own version of of the internet at to control every single piece of information that can be delivered to the Russian public. And now, he's always been sort of a problem, but now it's really something that you can't ignore, and it's worse than ever. As a former KGB agent, he's really trying to, I don't want to say reform the Soviet Union, but reform some semblance of what it was in but in his own vision, like not the same thing, his own version of it, and his recent actions only prove it. With him, I think the invasion of Ukraine is just the start, and it's basically just you know him trying to reform the whole Eastern Bloc. The only problem is a lot of those co- a couple of those countries are in NATO. So will he will he go that far? We don't know. But not only that, but him and the Russian government comp- are seem completely content with the consequences of disconnecting from the western internet and numerous major corporations are pulling out of russia as a result of this which could have disastrous effects on the comedy which is already in trouble with the sanctions against them Mm -hmm. so we'll see what happens Becca, what do you think
0: yeah well this isn't just simply uh... you know taking control over the internet and allowing people to only see like what he wants them to see or use the language that he wants them to use it's an attempt at further isolating the country as a whole and that's really important because right now russia already has so many strict laws about what can and can't come out of the borders and what can and can't be broadcasted on the internet and what they were allowed to like browse on the internet specific websites and stuff like that were blocked and this is just furthering that it's creating uh such an intense isolation that the citizens of russia are not going to be able to actively communicate with people in the rest of the world right now well we were seeing that a lot um i know there were a lot of tiktok videos that were gaining a lot of traction of people in russia and in the ukraine talking about their experiences and what's going on right now and Um, live tweeting on twitter like things like that that allow a bit of connection between the people that are there experiencing that right now and us who might be able to help them and by cutting that line of communication it's kind of it's just you know not allowing them to get the help that they need it's not allowing us to get the information we need and it's really just it's going to cause a lot more issues later down the line more so than just Putin creating his own Internet service
1: Yeah, was with, with Russia. There's there's we really can't don't know what's happening anymore. Like North North Korea has been always known as the country like the hermit state where we don't like we just don't know what's happening there. But mm-hmm. Russia's sort of turning into that. And because Putin was technically elected, there was always the illusion of democracy there. But now I that illusions sort of wearing thin. Michaela, what do you think?
2: Yeah, are we surprised this is the first time that Russia has unplugged itself from the internet? In 2019, Russia, quote, successfully tested its uh, unplugged internet, according to BBC. So it's something they were planning ahead. They were testing it out beforehand. And Russia in 2019 also said that they will be, uh, by 2019, uh, 2023, they'll be having their own Wikipedia website and other stuff. So I feel like we should have known that they were slowly aiming for that point.
1: Yeah, I think the... The fact that it specifically points out their own version of Wikipedia is particularly alarming because Wikipedia is supposed to be like the source for all information if you need something. I mean, people don't use it as a reliable source for, you know, like academics when you're writing an essay, but generally that's where that's a good place to go just to know stuff. Mm-hmm. And Russia having their own version of it is definitely going to give them opportunities for propaganda and telling them exactly what the government is going to want them to think. Yeah,
0: exactly. Because the Russian government is so particular about language there. Like, I'm sure we've all heard that he, Putin, is not a fan of calling it an invasion, but, um, and instead is, you know, almost forcing Journalists. I mean, there was a law passed that quite literally is forcing journalists to not use the term invasion or report anything that the Russian government deems to be fake news or they could see up to 15 years in jail for it. And that's a whole nother issue that also kind of goes along with stopping this Internet access is news. You know, us as journalists, we're always very conscious of laws that affect us, yeah. I'm, I'm sure. So right now. We know because of this law, there are journalists that were attempting to accurately report news from Russia uh, for both the safety of Russian and Ukrainian citizens and for citizens of other countries like us here in the US so that we could be aware and informed. And they've been shut down completely. Um, Independent stations in Russia have also been shut down. And right now we're only seeing uh, like state owned media outlets that are publishing this information and for Russian citizens This is the only thing that they're reading. You know what I mean? And that that leads to brainwashing that leads to a reliance on Putin even further. So he definitely knows what he's doing by enforcing these laws and this uh, restriction of the Internet.
2: I mean, it shouldn't also be the restriction of internet. I believe that history is perceived differently from different places. Mm-hmm. Like you say, from Cuba, like, you know, from the Cuban music crisis, they perceive how Americans reacted with them differently, how we perceive how they react to us differently. And I feel like Russia is the same way. They want their people to believe that their country is doing, the quote, the right thing. However, even besides the whole internet pullout, we should also consider that there are companies that are removing themselves from Russia. And that will definitely affect those average citizens, you know, below workers who rely on these jobs to pay bills to put food in the plate Mm
0: -hmm. yeah definitely well as always there's new stuff coming out of russia every single day so if you want to hear more about the situation that's going on in there just keep tuning in to morning show 8 to 9 a.m we're going to be talking about this probably for the foreseeable future i mean this is going to be a long-term issue so we're going to keep everyone updated on the situation but we're going to take a little song break right now because we're about to bring on Sue Zizza who is a Hofstra alum she's an audio producer director writer sound designer and the owner of Sue Media Radio Wave Studios and Sue Media Productions she's a very busy woman she is an Estabrook Award winner and she's going to talk to us about the Esterbrook Awards because they're coming up and just some other stuff about her current work. So very exciting. We're going to be welcoming her on in a few minutes. So stay tuned. 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University.
1: Oh, I never thought I would be at 23 on the verge of spontaneous combustion, while with me. But I guess that it comes with a territory,
0: anomalous landscape of a never-ending calamity. I need you to hear, I need you to see. But I am had I can take an exploding scene, like an event
2: possibility. But
0: I was having a look in a book and I saw a picture of a guy right up above his knee I said I can
1: relate cause lately I've been thinking of the kitchen as a welcome vacation from the burdens of the planet Earth, gravity, hypocrisy and the perils of being in three. But thinking so
0: And we're back on 88.7 FM WRHU. Right now, we are joined by Sue Zizza. She is, like I said earlier, Hofstra alum, audio producer, director, writer, sound designer, and owner of Sue Media Productions. She's also an Estabrook Award winner, which is what we're going to be discussing first, because the Estabrook Awards are actually coming up this month. Sue, I wanted to ask you if you could give our listeners a little context on what these awards are, how do you win one, and what are they benefiting at Hofstra?
4: Well, the Estherbrook Awards were named, and thank you very much for allowing me this time to speak to your audience and to talk a little bit about our program. The Estherbrook Awards were created, and this is the 60th award uh, that we'll be giving out, set of awards we'll be giving out. Um, they were created to honor George Estabrook, who was a developer, a community activist, and a tremendous uh, supporter of Hofstra University. So a lot of the area around uh, the university, as well as in Hempstead and Nassau County in particular, were helped to be developed into the economic um, prosperity that they have now because of George Esterbrook and his work in the community. And so the Esterbrook Awards every year honor a number of individuals who have added to the community and who are graduates of Hofstra University. For example, this year Heather Johnson, who is a executive director for the nonprofit Friends of Friends of the Bay. This is an organization that helps to improve the quality in every way of the uh, great south bay and the great north bay these are the areas that are taken care of because of the work of this nonprofit. additionally uh, another award winner this year is dorothy gooseby she's a senior councilwoman from the town of hempstead and her work has impacted numerous members of the Nassau County and, in particular, Hempstead community through the different programs that she's activated. And then someone who I personally actually, because I am an alum of Hofstra University, took classes with many years ago, Michael DiIncenzo, is going to be receiving a posthumous award um, he was supposed to come to our last in-person programming, but unfortunately he wasn't well at the time, and so now that we're having our program on Saturday, March 26th, uh, at the University Club in the afternoon, uh, we're hoping that um, you know, we'll be able to celebrate Michael and his many, many achievements and many contributions to the Hofstra community. There'll be members Uh, of his family representing him there so it's a very lovely event and the funds that get uh, generated through these programs and John Mullen the uh, operations manager at Hofstra University is at the radio station there is also an award winner Um, the reason um, that the program exists beyond uh, thanking these individuals for their many contributions is to allow monies to be raised for a few different scholarships at Hofstra University. So these programs have been being uh, developed for the last 60 years, and every time we have a program where we can, we continue to support those scholarships throughout the
1: year. So uh, as a former Estabrook Award winner yourself, how do you think winning it has helped your career in the years since?
4: Well, it reminds me all the time of, you know, what it is to choose the projects that I uh, produce. Sue Media Productions is an independent audio produ- association organization, an independent audio producing organization that uh, has been company, that has been... Uh, creating unique audio storytelling for the last 25 30 years almost and so I think that part of being an Estabrook winner reminds me that you know it's not just about entertainment it's also about content so for example our most recent project that we've released is an audio book called presence the play based on an original novel And the reason we decided to create Presence the Play was to give the audience an opportunity to think about, through a really fun and allegorical story, what it means to be present in one's life. Uh, The story focuses on the magical tale of an individual who Uh, goes through a big adventure and a big journey in a very fantastical way. Uh, And through that journey, he is constantly reminded that um, we face as human beings interesting challenges in the way our world has um, developed and now we have all this mediated technology that is constantly distracting us. For example, just a moment ago, I had a phone call coming in on the same line that I'm having this interview with you, and I had to stop and think, am I going to stay present in this moment and just focus on this wonderful opportunity to talk with these great individuals about the programs that I create as well as, the Estabrooks, or am I going to let the telephone distract me? And I chose to stay present. So I hope you didn't notice that I was being distracted.
2: (laughs) So what motivates you to create these types of content, and where do you get your inspiration from?
4: The inspiration comes from a whole variety of places. Um, in the case of Presence the Play, as I said, Sioux Media Productions is a commercial, independent audio producing company. We have uh, created numerous, numerous award-winning programs for public radio, for podcasts, for independent producers, for audiobooks. And every time a book or a project comes along, I I hate to say it, but I'm lucky, I'm blessed, I'm spoiled in the fact that um, I'm able to choose in a lot of ways the stories that I produce I don't see myself as creating just another audiobook just another audiobook just another audiobook and I don't mean that in a in a way that should be you know thought of as being hubris or something but I see myself as having the opportunity to use the skills and talents many of which I learned right there at then WVHC now WRHU And those skills have allowed me to choose stories that um, I think help to make people more supported in their challenges throughout their lives and to recognize that people can make a difference. For example, right now on our website, Sue Media Productions, we have a, a page up called Ukrainian Aid, where we have two stories that people can come and listen to for free. One is about the American politician Eugene Victor Debs, who stood up to World War One, and the other is about a wonderful woman artist named Kata Colwood, who stood up to World War Two. both of whom created interesting resistance to the idea of people having to go to war and die for somebody else's beliefs, you know. Just kind of like what's going on now. So we put the page up and we said, come and listen to these we hope inspirational stories. Recognize that people have made a difference. And you know, that's what presence is about, presence the play. And the in the magical way we tell this story, we hope that people recognize that they can make a difference. They can make a choice. They can be distracted in their lives by mediated technology or they can find balance and be able to have both in a very positive way. Let one aid the other, you know? And so um, it's called Presence the Play. You can come to our website, Sue Media Productions, take a look. It'll take you to some samples of the book, and then you can go and also listen at audible.com. But the whole point is that every time we create something, In our company, we try to pick stories that tell about possibilities and opportunities for the human experience. Did that answer your
2: question? Yes, it did.
1: So, with you being a former Estabrook, sorry, before I move on, with you being a former Estabrook winner, I'd just like to get your thoughts on the history of the award and what you think makes it so special and important of an award for someone to win?
4: Well, I think that um, George Estabrook himself was a great um, leader in the fact that he recognized the need for positive intersection between economy and education. And so he found ways to develop the Hempstead and Nassau County areas that also helped to, in some ways, um, give support to what was happening at Hofstra university in particular. And I'm sure other programs as well, because when there's better economy all around, people, you know, can come and participate in your programs. So there's that. Um, in particular, the the winners are individuals who have not only made a difference, um, in their particular industries, so, in the case of Heather this year, you know, she's a nonprofit um, executive director. And without the work of nonprofits throughout the country, and particularly here in Nassau County, the work that she does with the Great Bay, um, you don't have enough uh, support to keep everything going. So, as a result, you know, with her kind of work from the nonprofit community we have a number of politicians like Dorothy Goosby like Elizabeth Treston who's a councilwoman in the city of Long Beach and has long been um, working for you know individuals rights in a variety of areas Um, without the work of these individuals you know the there are programs that don't get created there are opportunities for uh, individuals that don't get created. So as a result, the Esterbrook brings to light the fact that there are wonderful people in our community who are doing work that is very exemplary in their particular industry, like I myself, John Mullen, and others who work in the communications industry. We've had many artists and people in the theater community. We've had others who have come from uh, writing and education and other parts of the um, political world as well and so these individuals are ones who take the time in their daily lives not only to excel in their industry but also to give back to their community and that's what the esterbrooks represents so in my case for example I couldn't help myself when it came when I saw what other groups and other organizations were doing I thought Well, I'll give a donation, which we did, but is there anything else we can do? So we put up this web page and we invited people to come and listen. And we hoped that not only would the stories inspire them of these individuals, but also they would maybe want to give to one of the numerous organizations that we put the web links to so that. After you listen to one of our stories at su Media Productions, Aid Ukraine, you can also choose to make a donation. So that's the kind of things that, you know, we try to do beyond also being involved in programs at the university. I help to run not only the Esterbrook Scholarships, but also some of the radio scholarships through the Hofstra Radio Alumni Association. And so we give back in numerous ways to the arts community for many years. I ran the Here Now Festival, I was part of the National Audio Theater Festivals, so numerous different ways do we give back in our communities.
0: Well Sue, thank you so much for joining us this morning, getting up so early and giving us some info on the Estabrook Awards. Could you just remind our listeners where they could find some of your audio work.
4: Yes, you can visit us at Sue Media Productions. That's S-U-E-M-E-D-I-A-P-R-O-D-U-C-T-I-O-N dot suemediaproductions.com on the web. And if you just click the links, it'll take you to a variety of things that we've been able to create over the years.
0: All right, well, thank you so much again. And we look forward to you know, seeing what's going on with these Estherbrook Awards this year. They're on March 26th, for anyone wondering. And uh, Sue, thank you again.
4: Thank you. Yes, they're on Saturday, March 26th at 5 p.m. at the Hofstra University Club. And if you're unable to attend in person, you can go to the university's Day of Giving page and give to the Esterbrook Awards, because we do contribute any funds beyond the cost of our dinner to a number of scholarships at Hofstra, including the John, Crescent, John Cranford Adams Scholarship, which is a theater scholarship.
0: Wonderful. All right. Well, you have a great day.
4: Thank, Thank you, you again. very much. Thank you very much. This was really fun, and I hope that uh, I gave you good answers.
0: Yes, of course. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. No Once again, that was Sue Zizza. She's a Hofstra alum and the Estabrook Awards coming up this year if anyone is interested in tuning in for that. Besides that, I'm just gonna have a quick little update on Kamala Harris. Uh, She flew to Poland on Wednesday and she basically had a little uh, media run with the president of Poland She did a lot of press conferences while in Europe. She also visited uh, Romania as well. And through this, this is kind of like a a sneak peek because we all know she's looking to move up to a higher office. She's not super familiar with foreign policy. So this for her, I think was a really great and also well-prepared trip for her to go to Europe, stop in both Poland and Romania. It was her third trip there in the past four months. She was very confident and well-rehearsed during the press conferences and surprisingly got very little Republic, Republican criticism for the way she handled herself there. So all in all, I will say it was a successful trip on her part.
1: Yeah, I, uh, uh, and you mentioned uh, re- very little Republican criticism. It's really good to know that not only is the U.S. government, you know, doing everything to avoid another major conflict, especially one that could really escalate, but also that there isn't really much disagreement on the fact that we should stay out of Ukraine. Obviously, we were helping out wherever we can, but if you really have been paying attention to Congress over the last, well, I guess, ever, with almost every single decision made by Congress, there's just endless bickering between Democrats and Republicans about why we should or shouldn't do said thing. Just look back to the Iraq War, which is a prime example. You'll see how divided the two main parties were, with 215 Republicans voting in favor, compared to a measly 81 Democrats voting against. However, what we're seeing is one of those rare occasions where both parties somehow, somewhere, find the ability to be reasonable and actually agree on something, which really gives me confidence that in the very likely event that the U.S. and NATO are forced to get involved You know, that is only if Putin invades a NATO country, which we don't know if that's going to happen, but I just got a feeling, I guess. We will handle it the right way because we're on a complete united front. Michaela, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I totally agree with that. I also f- agree that both sides know that America cannot afford another war. We're already taking out trillion dollars of loans from China just to afford the war in our, Afghanistan. So I feel that America should be focusing on the a, a war here in America. But the inflation the price of prices and gas, his food, the the employment rate increasing. There's definitely conflicts that they should be focusing more on.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, once again, this was just a great. Honestly, learning situation for Harris for some, I mean, obviously it's a horrible situation and a very intense moment for her to go over there and deal with all of this press. But she's learning some good, valuable wartime diplomacy and learning how to handle yourself in a position like this uh, during such an intense, you know, in time of invasions. So we'll have to see uh, what comes out of that. We don't know if she's going to be going back anytime soon, especially as things are continuing to get a little tighter over there with restrictions so we'll just have to see right now uh, Biden has made it clear that he does not want to have any direct contact Um, but we are uh, assisting the Ukraine through other countries and of course obviously allied with NATO so this is an ever-progressing situation and We're gonna keep everyone updated, but for right now, that's all the time we have today. So if (laughs) oh no, Dex is mad. I'm so sad. (laughs) I want to do this forever. (laughs) Well, you can always tune in Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday this week from eight to nine a.m. And you can tune back in right here Monday morning at eight a.m. to hear me, Michaela, and Abigail uh, next week on eighty-eight point seven FM Radio Hofstra University. As always, Michaela and Dex. It's been great um and I look forward to our next time together.
1: Remember to stay schmavi everybody, <laughs> All right? It's one thing I'm asking of you. Stay schmavi. It's <laughs> a demand.